Let me tell you what this political movement is about. Jobs and growth for all Australians. Gone jobs and growth. Have great jobs. Economic growth. Strong growth. More jobs. When they go low, we go high. So I'm seeing in my mind something very similar with this bill to a colonoscopy. Let me just stop you so you don't waste a line of questioning. I'm just giving you... I love the mansplaining. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. Please clap. Please clap. This is Represent. 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 On Sid Nation. Good afternoon. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation, the hour of politics. I'm Zizi Averill. I'm Oscar. I'm Isadora. And I'm Ben. On today's show, we'll be discussing the lead-up to the German elections, One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts and his citizenship debacle, and we'll also be taking a look at the New Zealand elections that are currently underway, where we'll be speaking to a former sinner and journalist, Anna Harcourt. And of course, we'll have Pop Chat, where we'll be discussing the most interesting, bizarre and shocking stories of the week. As always, we want to hear your thoughts, so send us a tweet at... Uh, Sin Represent, or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Sin Represent. But first, for a song, this is I'm Not the Same by R. Nada. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. Hey, Mr. Heartbreaker, do me a favor. Stop making me. Cause I feel I ain't strong no more Just heard from Aradna, who's a New Zealand artist, with I'm Not the Same. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. Now, the German elections are taking place this Sunday, with Chancellor Angela Merkel set to be the favourite. It's been a pretty quiet lead-up to this election, especially in comparison to other countries' elections that have happened this year. Um, But the results are thought to be... Fairly predictable. Um, we can hear now from Merkel and Martin Schultz, who's the leader of the Social Democratic Party, in a heated debate. And this is provided by Express News. We always stress that we need to find a common European solution. According to the Dublin Convention, they should stay where they first arrived, and so they are not allowed to come to Germany, and those states couldn't manage the flow. I think that you should have asked our neighbours for help in dealing with the refugee crisis. So I definitely wouldn't say that everything back in 2015 was done right. I see this completely differently, and I know that Mr Schulz also knows that this is not right. In 2015, we all knew that we've got a big problem here. But still we, all European states, couldn't find any consensus on a solution to the refugee issue. I acknowledge that. I think the decision was right. So it's really interesting, this election. Uh, Now, the Germans usually have to form a coalition, so um, it's looking likely that Merkel will be back in. She's been in since, or the leader, since 2005. Um, They're looking at obviously continuing that stability in Germany. But the real interesting part of this election is to do with the movement of the far right in Germany. Um, Guys, what do you think about this election? It's really kind of fascinating uh, because on the surface level it looks stable, but underneath there's some very interesting issues swirling around. Yes, it'll be interesting to see how much traction these far right parties do get since they're the first major far right parties in Germany since the end of World War II. So 
if we see we interested to see the outcome of how many votes they end up getting in this election and if there's anything that comes from it or if there's anything that gets brought to our attention because of these parties. Yeah, because of the exact nature of how coalitions are formed in Germany, they're usually between centrist parties. So we're likely to see a coalition between Merkel's Christian Democrat Party and the SDP, which you mentioned before. Um, however, and because they take up such a majority of the vote, really the largest opposition party will be this new party called the Alternative for Deutschland, uh, which is the Eurosceptic um, anti-immigration party, which were is kind of the first rise of, of far-right parties in Germany. It's a bit of a worry. They are predicted... Originally, in 2015, they were thought to have a much bigger hold on the parliament or the likely vote. This was in 2015 at the height of the migration crisis. But I think Merkel has been able to reclaim a lot of that territory and really cut down on the anti-immigrant vote just by steadying the economy and um, generally portraying herself as a antithesis to the instability abroad and because of this I think they're they, they are going to have a significant amount of seats in in the parliament but perhaps less than they were predicting in say 2015 when they looked like they were really going to power through the parliament yeah it's really interesting I guess from an Australian perspective sort of the issue is who's going to be running and placing third which is a bit sort of alien to our understanding of um democratic elections um, but I guess it's encouraging that um, that sort of um, steadying of Merkel's support base has, has occurred over the last year um, that anti-immigrant sentiment um, I mean obviously we're going to have to wait for the results but it looks like there's a sort of push towards the end here um, and people are kind of thinking it's, it's looking positive for her um, I find her position really interesting. Zizi, you, you know, you, we've t talked about this before. Um, Merkel as this stabilising force. Her nickname's really interesting as well. Mm. So, yeah, Merkel is very well known in Germany as Mutti, which means mother. And she's she's a very long-lasting figure in politics. I believe this is her fourth consecutive term uh, that she's running for, which is a long time in parliament. And to a lot of Germans, I think she's seen as a very stabilising figure in German politics and quite a reliable figure in what seems like a very unstable world. Um, so I think she's a very interesting figure in terms of like this national icon of stability and moderation. Um and perhaps that's what Germany is looking for. However, I, I don't want to underplay, even though they were predicted to have a, a very large swing in 2015, I don't want to underplay the fact that they're predicted to get 10% of the vote. I mean, this is a very large voter block when we look at the parliament. And this is really the first time a far-right party has gained such a hold. So while the anti-immigration sentiment might not be as high as... It could have been. It's still a powerful force in politics and might be something to watch out for, not only in Germany, but in other elections across Europe, because this is an EU issue as well. Yeah, I guess it's just a reflection of that sort of historic moment that we're in the midst of, which is that huge sort of um, humanitarian crisis and um, large numbers of asylum seekers across the world, but particularly in Europe, um, and you can you can see that anti-immigration sentiment. It, we saw it earlier in the year in the 
French elections, um, obviously we have a similar strain in our own politics here in Australia. Um, it's interesting to see how that um, sentiment um, sort of manifests itself in different ways across the world. Um, it's a really interesting thing just to take your eye off Australia for a bit and, and look at how other countries deal with that. Um, I guess that's the interesting thing about Germany, the sort of um, debate, the public debate that they've been having. Um, and it's been quite nuanced at points. So, um, yeah, really interesting times. Yeah, I think the EU has been struggling with the idea of multiculturalism for a very long time. Um, and because Europe is kind of a, a, a very unitary block and they're dealing with globalisation and the influx of different cultures into their own system, I mean, most notably, um, only in September, Merkel made a public announcement that Turkey should not become an EU member. Now, Turkey has had some issues in recent months, but for a very long time, quite a few years ago, they were petitioning to become an EU member and they were seen as a very viable candidate. And a lot of people opposed their entry because it was seen as an outside Europe, non-Christian, non-European country entering into the EU system. And so I think this idea that Merkel is this perfectly cosmopolitan person might be an exaggeration, but... Definitely an overstatement. Yeah, there is some issues that Europe as a whole needs to deal with in terms of multiculturalism and accepting a multi-ethnic community, um, which I think everyone needs to come to grips with. But Merkel is definitely seen as a positive figure with her steps on the immigration crisis. I mean, um, I think it'll be interesting to see whether the far right might might try and make a coalition with some of the more centrist parties or whether they'll try and, you know... Be stand with its values the whole time and just um, be fully independent from all the other parties. Yeah, I mean, you can sort of view that in the lens of, um, say, our own sort of far-right party, the One Nation. Um, if you just look at the, the, the amount of bills that they vote with the government, instead of being a sort of outside force critiquing the government at every turn, they actually vote with the government quite often. So, yeah, I agree. It's really it's going to be quite interesting to see how they behave with the numbers um, when this election concludes tomorrow. I guess that's just something we'll have to keep an eye out and we'll be giving an update next week once we actually know the results and we can clarify some of these details about, you know, how Germany voted for its future. Um, We're going to go to a song now. Um, The song... um, Hello, Miss Lonesome. Oh, yes. uh, By Marlon Williams. And you're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. You just heard Hello Miss Lonesome by Marlon Williams. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. Don't forget to send us a tweet on at Sin Represent or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Sin Represent. So it seems that nearly every week here there's new breaking news regarding Australian politicians holding dual citizenship. But our focus this week is on One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts, who has been found unlike uh, who's found that he was a dual UK citizen um, despite denying that he saying that he renounced it this week the high court found that he was a dual citizen despite his efforts to reject it what do you guys 
what, what did you guys think of the case? Was it a strong case that he had renounced his citizenship? Um, from what I read, no. He didn't really have a strong case, and even his own lawyer mentioned that during cross-examination, he didn't... Roberts didn't have his own case with it, considering that he sent two emails to the British High Commission, one to a non-existent address and one to an email address that hadn't been in use in over six, uh, four years. So it's not a lot of effort he had taken to renounce his British citizenship, I found myself. Yeah, I think it was quite astounding hearing that he had sent he had actually done his processes wrong, seeing as, you know, it's very easy to Google how to renounce your citizenship. I believe one of the commentators was like, you know, if you type in how to renounce your Google citizenship, your your British citizenship, the UK High Commission's official page is the first result and it says very clearly the steps you need to take. So I'm wondering what kind of logic process went into an email correspondence and not hearing back and therefore assuming... It had been processed. Like yeah, I, I don't know if we're going to get very far with trying to understand the logic of um, Senator Malcolm Roberts, um, but yeah, I mean it's it's been fascinating to see how people have been trying to understand that logic, and it was an interesting um, process having that um, the High Court look at it and try and decipher that as well. I did feel some sympathy for his lawyer. It, um, sort of the twists and turns of this issue as it's um, come about over the last couple of months. There's been a lot of different um, statements by Malcolm Roberts over over that time and I think, yeah, that, that really didn't help his case. Um, and obviously they were looking at the sincerity of his belief and part of that is um, the sort of efforts he made and, yeah, that f- fake email was really quite strange. I don't know, it's sort of like... It seems like very basic information that most people kind of understand. You've got to find the right email address or at least a sort of relatively decent-looking email address. It looked a bit bizarre even to yeah, my unlearned eyes. And it's a question of how, what made him use this email address or claim to find this email address because it's some, did he think of it on the spot as a rush last minute, oh, I need to email this address, or did he find this information elsewhere and believe it was the truth? So he sent uh, a few emails, one of which went to the actual High Commission. The the previous two were obviously dud email addresses or ones that didn't respond. Um, What I think is interesting is, and kind of seems a bit farcical when you're looking at it, is that this idea that the, the depth of your belief that you have renounced your citizenship and whether or not this constitutes... Uh, this meets the threshold of Section 44, which is, you know, not having adherence or allegiance to a foreign nation. I, I think when it comes to matters of law, we look very clearly, and Malcolm Roberts was very clearly a dual citizen to most legal experts. However, with Section 44, it, it's about whether or not you're aligned with a foreign nation and whether belief of being aligned is the same as being alignment. Yeah, it all gets very bogged down in that legalistic language which is always very confusing Um, but I I do appreciate that Australians have had an opportunity to really grapple with the constitution this year which is a bit unusual for us really. Um, Everyone's sort of become constitutional experts over the process of this um, issue and and we've kind of, we've got so much more of it to go but yeah definitely on this um, Roberts Roberts's case 
Um, it seems pretty clear cut now after this um, High Court kind of finding. And I think, oh, sorry. There are also questions about the sincerity of his belief. Most notably, his his last email. I think the the header was, "Am I a British citizen?" Question mark. So obviously, there was there was doubts of his own procedures as he was emailing, you know, the British High Commission. Um, so yeah, I believe it is a very cut and dry case. Uh, obviously, we need to wait for the High Court to make its full del- deliberation. We've had the High Court make this statement from Justice Keane and we're about to hear from the full bench later um, and we'll just see whether he actually loses his position. Um, it's believed that his the person set to replace him might have a second constitutional battle. Um, there is a One Nation senator who I believe may also be in violation of Section 44, um, this time about proceeds from the Crown, um, which might be a whole different debacle and it's likely that if that candidate fails to get to replace Malcolm Roberts, it'll go to Pauline Hanson's sister, who we believe has no constitutional conflicts. But it does kind of show a bit of chaos in one nation. Yeah, um, it's an issue that's been brought up with all political parties now and how strongly their vetting process is for candidates before nomination. Because I believe for most major parties currently, it's you just sign a form stating that you don't have a foreign citizenship when you nominate, but then the parties may not actually verify that thoroughly in the case of One Nation we've seen. So it's been interesting to see the next upcoming election, if the vetting process has changed for political parties or how, if there's any consequences of what's happened this term. Yeah, I think it's also really important just in terms of One Nation and their sort of vetting processes. When this story broke about his potential to be, um, Robert's potential to be a dual citizen, they pushed back very strongly, particularly on their Facebook page. This is where they um, speak to their supporters most directly um, about, you know, the media witch hunt that is sort of targeted towards Roberts and how ridiculous and all this sort of stuff. Um, So I think there's a little bit of credit due to the journos who've proceeded despite that um but you know obviously perhaps that wasn't exactly the the right course of events for you know one nation to be so strong in in their declaration at the front there well maybe they didn't have the practice the processes that were backing up that um belief Mm. but i think it's also got to do with also i guess general oversight by I say Parliament, because a lot of the... Because the reason how this whole debacle started was one politician realised that they had a citizenship and they were, I guess, quite... They were quite up front in that they resigned, I'm pretty sure. Yep. Yes. And um, yep, that was Green's uh, senator yes. from WA, Scott Ollum. Yes. And, <laughs> and now it's caused this whole chain of events with all these other senators. But if... Scott Ludlam hadn't, you know, noticed this and stayed in Parliament, then what would have happened then? Yeah, there certainly wouldn't have been journalists questioning other politicians' backgrounds and their nationalities. So it may not have been an issue now or it may have been... We just don't know how the, polit- uh, how the journalists would have got up the information <laughs> beforehand without <coughs> Ludlam announced and he was a New Zealand dual citizen. Well, the case was actually investigated by a Melbourne lawyer. He was originally scrutinising whether um, 
Darren Hinch was eligible um, to run for the set to, for, to represent Victoria, and he, in that investigation, he actually found out about Scott Ludlam and informed him that he was ineligible for Parliament. Um, I think back when Ludlam announced his dual citizenship, I don't think anyone expected it to get to this level. I mean, we're looking at, uh, you know, our deputy prime minister being a New Zealand citizen. I mean, this is really dominoed out of control from people being born in Canada and New Zealand and not realising it. Um, uh, Just a clarification, before I said that uh, the second candidate that would replace Malcolm Roberts was facing a Section 44 breach, he's actually... uh, the candidate is Fraser Anning, and there's actually bankruptcy proceedings against him, which is a different uh, constitutional conflict and obviously something to look into. But it, it, it is interesting that One Nation has not done the proper scrutiny of their candidates. Um, maybe on a completely different note, um, and maybe in the line of minority parties being a bit chaotic, One Nation actually failed to register for the South Australian elections and therefore they're ineligible to run in the state elections. I think it just generally paints this picture of a party that's in disarray and hasn't got its hands around bureaucracy and a basic administration. Yeah, which is in complete contrast to um, after the federal election last year, there was a lot of talk about how they're a more sophisticated outfit than you know their heyday as um, you know, a baby political party with a great um, upswell of support in the 90s um, where they were sort of marked by chaotic um, both press management and and political party management. Um, And there was a lot of talk last year about how they're a more sophisticated outfit and much more um, unified and had all the administrative checks and balances in place. And, yeah, I don't know, it's sort of um, with time maybe falling apart a little bit, that idea of... uh, one Nation Mark II being a superior model. Yes, yeah, um, especially with the South Australian election coming up, it's especially for all the new parties in South Australia, such as the Nick Xenophon's party and the um, Cody Bernardi's Australian Conservatives, it's really interesting to see what possible voters One Nation would have attempted to grab in South Australia, along with those other parties, and if they were a force to be reckoned with in this upcoming election or if they were just another fringe party attempting to gain voters in South Australia? Well, I think they were predicted to get um, some seats in South Australia. Obviously, we, we can't test that theory anymore because they failed to register in time. But I think there is definitely some push behind One Nation and, I guess, in general, like um, minority parties that are against maybe the mainstream bloc parties like Labour and Liberal. Yeah, I suppose what you were saying before about um, South Australia, um, it's a particular um, political context. And, of course, Cory Bernardi and Nick Xenophon, their teams, um, have uh, huge support in South Australia in terms of that state in particular in, in the national scene. So, yeah, it would have been very interesting kind of test case. But um, obviously we'll, we won't be able to get that um, test any further um, now that they've failed to, to, to register for the election. 
Uh, tell us what you think by tweeting at SinRepresent or uh, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. Um, this is obviously something that might spark a lot of conversation online. Um, but now we'll go to a song. This is Settle Down by Kimbra. You're listening to Sin Nation. Is the sweetheart you married the husband you expected him to be? Boom, 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 ba. Boom, 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 ba. Boom, 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 ba. I wanna settle down. I wanna settle down. Won't you settle down with me? Settle down. We can settle at a table. A table for two. Wake up in somebody else's car. We order different drinks at the same bars. I know about what you did and I want to scream the truth She thinks you love the beach, you're such a damn liar Well, those great whites, they have big teeth Oh, they bite you, that you said that you would always be in love But you're not in love You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation And you just heard Green Light by Lord and before that was settled down by Kimbra. The polls have officially opened in New Zealand with what looks like to be a close race between the governing National Party and opposition Labour Party. Joining us from Wellington is Anna Harcourt, former sinner and current journalist for ARI, the online video channel from NZ National Broadcaster TV New Zealand. Firstly, thanks for joining us, Anna, and how's it going? Hi, yeah, good. Exciting day today in New Zealand. So, first up, what are some of the main differences between Australian politics and New Zealand politics? So, I would say one of the main differences is that here voting is not compulsory. So, unlike you guys, we don't actually have to vote. Uh, Another big difference is that we don't get a democracy sausage, which I think is a big shame and should be something that would be uh, introduced in New Zealand. on a different note, I'd say in general there tends to be less extreme views. We don't really have anyone sort of like Pauline Hanson in New Zealand. We don't tend to get that kind of really, really dramatic, feisty political debate and rhetoric with really extreme views like you can see in Australia. Yeah, so that's bit um, upset about no democracy sausage in New Zealand. <laughs> um, so we're, we're interested in who are the big players, the big players in the election now, and the main people involved with these parties. Okay, so the two main players are, it's quite similar to Australia. So we've got the National Party and the Labour Party. So the National Party in New Zealand are pretty similar to the LNP coalition over in Australia. Labour Party in New Zealand, pretty similar to Labour Party in Australia. So they're the two main players. Uh, National are currently in government. They have been for the last nine years. Uh, And the leaders, so the leader of the National Party is Bill English. He used to be the finance minister and the deputy prime minister, but he became the leader of National at the end of last year when John Key stepped down. So John Key had been the New Zealand Prime Minister for eight years. Uh, He was the leader of the National Party. He stepped down. Bill English has been in charge 
since then. Then over on Labour, the Labour leader is Jacinda Ardern. She only became leader seven weeks ago, so it's been a very tumultuous and exciting election period. Everybody sort of thought it was going to be quite boring because the leader, uh, the previous Labour leader, Andrew Little, he sort of his public persona came across as quite boring. Bill English's public persona came across as quite boring. So earlier in the year, it was going to, it was being referred to as the battle of the boring men. Uh, but then, seven weeks ago, Labour was polling terribly. It was getting disastrous numbers. It had dropped to as low as 20% support, which was its lowest numbers in decades. So Andrew Little stepped down, up steps Jacinda Ardern, and she's just completely flipped the election round. It is, it's been called Jacinda mania. People are just basically going nuts. She's young, she's fresh, she's completely different. So she's only 37 years old. She's the youngest ever opposition leader. Uh, and, but despite being, you know, despite being young, she has had nine years in government. So she is actually a very experienced politician. But just compared to the leader of the National Party, Bill English, he's 55. He's been in politics for oh, 30 years now. He uh, he's sort of seen as a much more traditional. Uh, and he would, you know, he sort of tries to project the image of being a sort of stable leader. He's conservative. He's a Catholic. He, um, he voted against same-sex marriage in 2013. He's got quite traditional conservative Catholic views. He's been a finance minister, so he really runs on a platform of conservative, stable financial leadership. Jacinda, total opposite. Young, female. She has, she's really running on a campaign, as she calls it, of relentless positivity and a vision for New Zealand. So she's really talking about things like child, pover, child poverty, uh, changing New Zealand's terrible mental health record, our terrible homelessness crisis. Uh, so it's become quite an interesting, quite an interesting uh, little race. Hi, Anna, and this is Isadora here. Um, I just wanted to ask you... Do you think that there's been a difference? Obviously, seven weeks ago, there was a bit of a shift. Um, do you think there's been a difference in terms of engaging young people? Obviously, you're talking about Jacinda as um, being youthful and kind of activating, a, 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 I guess, a proportion of people who weren't interested in politics before, if it was a boring race before. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, totally. So there's been a lot of discussion around whether we're going to be seeing a youth quake, like what was seen in Brexit, where these massive numbers of young people who hadn't been expected to vote came out in force. Uh, and that, there's, a, there's a lot of expectation that that's happening now, and especially because of Jacinda, because she's young, because she also is really specifically trying to target young people and young voters. Labour all of a sudden have come up with a whole heap of new policies just under Jacinda, just in the last seven weeks, that are quite clearly targeted to support, uh, sorry, to target young people. So things like promising free tertiary education, I mean, that's massive. That's something that's never really been part of the political discussion so far as I can remember, you know, in, in my life. And all of a sudden, Labour are now saying, oh, we'll give you, you know, three years free tertiary education. Um, they're making a lot of attempts to really try and target young people, get them voting and get them voting for Labour. And I think that, I mean, we'll have to wait until the results come in to really see 
how that's translated into the numbers. but we, I mean, so far we have had a massive early voting turnout. So uh, this year they started the period of voting much earlier. So voting opened 11 days ago so that people who aren't able to make it on voting day, which is today, could vote in advance. Uh, and so there's just been a record number of early votes, 1.24 million early votes, which considering that you know we're pretty small, we only have 3.5 million eligible voters, having 1.24 million people already having cast their votes before election day. It's definitely showing that people are getting out there. We don't know if those are young people or if they're old people, but um, a lot of a lot of different commentators are suggesting that we may see quite a dramatic rise in young people voting. Although, on the other hand, we've actually got still quite low numbers of young people enrolled. So only 68% of young people, 18 to 24 year olds, are actually enrolled. That's the lowest. Uh, the lowest enrolment out of all the demographics. So we'll have to wait and see. Sounds like an absolutely fascinating election to cover. Obviously, there'll be lots of things to sort of um, look at once we get the results. Do you think that international trends, obviously you referenced Brexit there and the youth quake, um, international trends like um, sort of anti-establishment, anti-immigration, that sort of thing is sort of playing out in terms of this election in New Zealand? Yeah, I think so. Like I said earlier, in New Zealand, we don't get that kind of really extreme political rhetoric that you see sometimes in Australia, that we've definitely seen in the United States uh, and in countries across Europe. We're much more, we tend to be much more subdued. But on that note, we have definitely seen a rise in support for New Zealand First, who's one of the minor parties here. Uh, and they, I mean, they really campaign on anti-immigration. I wouldn't say it's not quite the sort of extreme xenophobic rhetoric that you do hear from some of those European far-right anti-immigration parties, but they very, they really have a strong anti-immigration policy, uh, and um, they, yeah, they've really been campaigning on it. Um, and have been campaigning on reducing immigration numbers to New Zealand. Uh, and their support has definitely risen, uh, although the polls have been fluctuating. So again, it's another case of we might just have to wait and see. This election has been just neck and neck. Every poll, the numbers fluctuate. You know, the Green Party will seem to go up a bit, and New Zealand First will seem to go down. Labour will be in the lead, and the National will be in the lead. So it's really, it could be anyone's race at this stage. So exciting. Uh, now, this might seem a bit of a weird question, but we really need to ask you this. Um, what's up with the uh, orange election mascot? Could you give us some details on that? The orange man, it's so funny because he's just totally normal. He's just, you know, sorry, he's sorry. always been there. I think How a lot normal? of New Zealanders don't even really consider him a big deal. He's just, you know, he's the orange man. He's the election mascot. But then earlier this week when a US comedian, Paul F. Tompkins, tweeted about it saying, you know, have you seen that New Zealand has this weird citrus golem as their election mascot? And it kind of went nuts. And so everybody overseas was all of a sudden kind of, going crazy over our election mascot and then Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords who's kind of New Zealand's dearest 
you know, beloved kind of uh, comedian's son, he tweeted back saying, well, you have a weird citrus golem as a president. And that went bananas in New Zealand. Everybody was just loving that. But it's, it's really funny to me because he's just kind of, you know, he's just the orange man. He's just, he's just there and he's trying to get us out and about to vote. But, um, yeah, that's, he's, 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 he's not too controversial, I think. No, everybody in New Zealand, no one hates him. He's just he's just there trying to get us to exercise our democratic right. He he definitely sounds like your version of the election sausage, so I'm sure we can all fully support that over the ditch. Um, Not as tasty, though. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with us, um, and good luck uh, with the results of this election coming out. Thank you. Uh, that was former sinner and current journalist Anna Harcourt speaking to us about the New Zealand elections, which are currently underway. As we speak, so as she was saying, keep your eyes peeled on all those results coming through over the weekend and it should be really interesting. And remember, if you're a New Zealand citizen and you're registered to vote, you can still vote while overseas, so you should check out the election website um, if to make your voice heard over in the, over the Tasman Sea. Yeah, always got to remain politically engaged, even when you're not in the country. Uh, so now it's time for Pop Chat where we talk about all of the weird and wonderful things of the week. Uh, Does anyone have anything exciting? It's been an interesting week in politics. It has indeed. Um, One of the most interesting developments, I I think, is uh, our former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, being headbutted by a constituent in Tasmania. Um, This was something that uh, was widely cited as being related to the same-sex marriage postal plebiscite um, and really became like a lynch, uh, a launching point for a lot of no campaigners to point to the yes campaign and say that, you know, this is a dangerous campaign. However, it's been later released that uh, the man who headbutted our former prime minister was not actually um, camp- being violent because of his stance on same-sex marriage, but actually just because of his tenure as... Australia's Prime Minister, where he had 33% approval ratings, so not a very popular Prime Minister, but certainly in this climate of campaigning, it's really been turned into a larger issue of, you know, the yes versus the no campaign. What do you guys think? But, I mean, I think it's interesting, because a lot of... Um, so pretty sure he was wearing a vote yes um, badge when the assault took place. Um, so a lot of people went off and was just like, yeah, he did this because... Tony Abbott's against this, so I'm just going to headbutt him. Um, and I mean, it's very hard to prove motive. Oh, he, he very publicly, uh, the attacker very publicly announced that it was not because of his stance on same-sex marriage, but his general disagreement with his political stance and his time as our Prime Minister. Um, I think it is interesting that the No campaign really grabbed onto this as a symbol of um, maybe like a broader threat by the no, the yes campaign, um, and it was it was very interesting. There has been a lot of rivalry um, between the two factions, and this has resulted in some, I wouldn't say altercations, but definitely some tensions between the two groups. They've really been like jumped on by both sides as evidence of you know the the moral weakness of the of the yes or the no campaign. Yeah, I think it's been interesting the response of the the official yes campaign. I mean, there's a lot being said online um, about this incident, um, but the response from the official yes campaign was um, completely um, 
refusing to acknowledge that as a as a valid form of political protest. Um, they condemned that action, and I think um, we have been lucky in Australia to have a political culture where um, violence done to campaigners and and politicians has been rare, um, and that is, has been a disturbing aspect of this. Um, we mentioned last week um, Kevin Rudd's godson um, apparently got um, into an altercation about this debate and he was for the Yes campaign. So obviously I think it has been um, a pretty sad um, occurrence. Um, but yes, as, as, he, as you said, um, it's been sort of held up as representative of the Yes campaigners um, and perhaps that isn't exactly... Um, useful for yes campaigners to be aligned with some sort of violent image um mm. and i think you can argue that that's really um not representative of their campaign which has been trying to be conducted in a respectful um and polite um manner as we are used to in australia i think both we can generally say that both sides are acting peacefully but whenever these violent incidences do occur whether or not they're actually related to the same-sex marriage postal plebiscite they're always construed in that way because it benefits either side's campaign because we are for a first time well not the first time but for a very long time facing a non mandatory vote we suddenly need to rally the troops around our different factions and our different sides and so suddenly you have this need for moral outrage um and this has turned into people you know being look, pointing at the other side and being like look at them they're violent mm-hmm. look at them they are being abusive or you know we need to rally around and against them and i think this is very dangerous i i think it's a very worrying trend um in how we kind of do our democratic process, that we kind of have a, a, a literal yes versus no factional divide. Yeah, and certainly that sort of emotional um, get out the vote versus our normal compulsory let's try and persuade people who are in the middle and undecided is a huge contrast to the way that con- um, politics has been conducted. I mean, I think there's also been sort of a similar trend in America of blaming certain actions, especially done in protests, on one certain political group um, as opposed to the other political group, which I think is sort of dangerous because a lot of people in each group would probably condemn the action. Yeah. I think generally Australians condemn violence and we don't agree with it. Um, But now, you know, we're facing this, these random instances of violence and we're construing them to political campaigns. Um. Yeah, it's a case of the few ruin it for many. It's for the vast majority of us, there's no violence in politics, but there are these few edge cases where there are violence against campaigners, and it just fuels more debate for the other side, being like, the other side's more violent, is violent. You shouldn't... Um, follow there because you should follow us now. So it's purely um, helping the other side out whenever these cases of violence do occur. And it's in any group, you may find a few instances of violence, but on a larger scale, Australia isn't a violent country. We're not violent in nature. So it, it's a bit upsetting to see these cases happening and occurring and it being 
construed as all of the yes campaigners are violent or all of the no campaigners are violent when it's simply not true. Uh, we should probably take the opportunity now to um, again talk about responding to the survey. Um, most people have received their um, survey materials in the post this week. Um, if you're still waiting around for yours, make sure you've got your eyes peeled and then um, contact the ABS if you feel you haven't received them. Um, there's details on, on their website. Um, there's obviously deadlines, um, so make sure that you're aware of those. Um, but uh, the uh, campaign line from both sides has been to return your response as quickly as possible. As soon as you receive um, the materials, uh, make your selection and then post it straight away because the longer that material lingers around your house, the more that you get caught up in your life and... The less likely you vote. Exactly. You might lose it, you might forget, and you don't want to um, uh, miss out. So um, if you don't receive your survey... Requests for replacements must be made by October the 18th via the ABS website and it's highly recommended that surveys are mailed back to the ABS by October 27 to ensure that they receive it on time. Um, Also, if you feel like you need support, um, obviously this conversation has become the dominant national conversation in politics. Um, There's a number of places you can contact, such as Switchboard, QLife, Headspace and Lifeline and you can just Google all of those names and find someone to talk to. Um, You don't need to be alone. That is all all we have time for this week on Represent. We'll be back 3 to 4pm on Sin Nation next Saturday and streaming online on sin.org.au. Stay tuned for Technocrats. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes by listening to podcasts on iTunes and on me. And, of course, you can send in feedback to us through Twitter with at Sin Represent on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Sin Represent. Thanks, thanks also to our executive producer Natasha Hatvani and assistant producer Julie Pillay. I'm Ben. I'm Zizi. I'm Oscar. I'm Isadora. And remember to stay political. On Sin Nation.